guys. Welcome to another episode of Live with the Cork in the Road. I'm Kelly. I'm your wine explorer here in Atlanta, Georgia, and I am chatting with people who are shaping the Southeast wine industry. Guys, I still think I'm smiling about recording this upcoming episode for you guys. It was so much fun to chat with Katie of The French Wine Tutor. She's a blogger. She's a digital wizard. She knows so much about the social media space, and she knows so much about wine and French culture and travel. And she's somebody that I've been connecting with online for, I think, over a year or so. She started her Instagram page really to help people with pronunciations of French wine terms. So I started seeing people post about it. I loved her first videos. She was super helpful and actually helping me kind of understand French language for the first time in a long time. I've studied Spanish almost my whole life. And though fluency in Spanish helps a little bit when I'm traveling in France, The pronunciation is really, really difficult to get a grasp on when you speak other languages or no second language at all. And she just has such a friendly approach to it all. And she also has backed it up with incredible wine knowledge. So I am so thrilled for you to learn about her background and what she does as part of her brand and her services and her insight on the wine industry and how it weaves along with French culture. So Please sit back, enjoy, pour probably a French wine for this one, maybe a Beaujolais. Go with that. She loves those, and she'd be happy to know that you're sipping along with us. So enjoy, and cheers, friends. Well, I am chatting live with Katie of the French Wine Tutor, straight out of New York City. Hey, Katie. Hi. So (laughs) cool to have you. We're just laughing about this right now because in the virtual world we're in, I've never met you in person and you're one of those people I feel like I know in wine because you are just so influential online and with your brand. But for anybody who doesn't know, what is the French Wine Tutor and why did you start this cool brand? (laughs) Um, So French Wine Tutor is uh, an Instagram page. It's a blog. Um, Hopefully in the future it will be some kind of business. I haven't figured it out yet. Um, But essentially, I started it because I used to work in French wine. I used to work for a French wine agency. Uh, They did wine and food, and they represented the vast majority of the French wine region trade associations. And so I really had a baptism by fire into French wine. And when I was working there, I was at the time the only American who was hired because I had a high level of French speaking. So everything that I learned about wine initially was in the French language. It was not in English. And it was my job essentially to launch and then nurture French wine regions, social media. So I did their Facebooks, uh, Instagram, Twitter, I did all their content creation. And while I was doing this, a lot of what I discovered is that there's a huge misunderstanding, not just from consumers, but also from people in the trade, others who are wine experts or wine advocates. And they just, there's just a kind of a wall between the French language and the wine that they love so much. So there's a lot of hesitation and fear about pronouncing labels and grapes and regions. And I was like, well, you know, the French aren't doing this yet. I think a lot of them are really starting to explain their culture a little bit more, but you know, they're not a native English speakers as either. So I decided, you know, let me just bridge this gap and help everybody out and see what I can do. So I started French Wine Tutor to kind of explain the meanings of French wine terms as well as the pronunciation of those really difficult words. I love that. I only recently 
found out that that was your background living in the social media world, helping others. And then that was kind of the fuel for your brand. Do you remember that first post that you made on Instagram, like your launch into that virtual world? Yeah, I do. I think the first post was like this beautiful sweeping region of the, the hills uh, right east of the uh, Dordogne River, which is like, it's like a gorgeous area, as I'm sure you know. So nobody knew about this region. I'd never heard about this region. I had been on the job two days and they said, write a content calendar for the next month. And I was like, okay, sure. <laughs> like, did you think that it would grow so quickly? You legit jumped into this world. But before I knew it, I was finding lots of other people cross posting your content and saying, Hey, like if you need help pronouncing things, submit a pronunciation request, which guilty. I did that. That's how I connected with you. I was like, Oh, I need someone to teach me. But did you have any expectation when you put that first post that you'd be where you are right now? Well, first of all, you can always send me pronunciation requests. That's what I'm here for. I live off those pronunciation requests. So don't stop sending me them <laughs> to anybody listening or to yourself. Um, no, I mean, it is pretty shocking. I think the first six months, I was just blown away because I got to like two or three K within two or three months. And I was like, how is this? I know I'm like good at social media, but I'd only done it for brands before. And it's a very different thing. And I think that's a common misconception, right? Is that brand strategy and influencer strategy is the same. And it's not, it's a totally different approach. You have to have experience in one in order to do the other. And it's just, it's totally different. So I didn't think that I was going to have the success at all. And it just really warmed my heart when everybody was like, Oh my gosh, like, look at this. I was like, okay, cool. Like glad I'm Glad I'm filling a void for everybody. I think you found a lot of people that love French wine and they realized that maybe a gap in their education was the language side, but you've been learning French for a long time. When was the, your first formal French education? When did that begin? I started when I was 11. For America, it's pretty, it's pretty early. Was that in <laughs> school, like in your, in your elementary school or your middle school programming? Yeah, I just started sixth grade and they did a kind of exploratory block where you could take any language. So they rotated us around. So they did, um, you know, Spanish, French and German. So I went into that class and just fell in love with it from the beginning. It was, I think she knew how to hook us, that teacher. She was this young, beautiful Parisian uh, and she was very passionate about her language and culture. And the first day she showed everybody photos of Paris and of Provence. And I was like, how can you not choose French after this? So <laughs> that was the end of it. <laughs> and you just kind of stuck with that. I think I have a similar experience, but it was with Spanish, but it really was that teacher, that mentor. And I love how you go right back. I can just see you visualizing that person and how influential she was for you. So once you started the French education, you ended up living there, I think like twice or something. When did the wine development come into your language studies? Was that when you were actually living in France? Yeah. My biggest influence, I think, outside of that first French teacher, and really I was very lucky because I had a lot of really wonderful French teachers outside of that. But when I studied abroad, my Parisian host mother was an exceptional human being. I think, I think, I'm sure she's still out there somewhere. She wasn't that old when I had her. So, but we've fallen out of touch, unfortunately, but she was just, she was very bourgeois. Like she knew the Sarkozy's. She lived in this very upscale neighborhood outside of Paris. She had all of these like beautiful scarves and perfumes and she would have these amazing dinner parties, which is very, very French. They're just a very communal culture. And so 
Um, she would have all of her friends over and there was always wine involved. But the one experience that really got me was I was sick with a cold uh, and it was a really bad cold. Uh, we called it the French flu, all of us who were studying abroad together because we all got it and it was horrible. No medicine that they were giving me at the pharmacy worked. And I was like, this is horrible. You people have awful medicine. Like I was very angry and very sick. And so I like was eating dinner with my host mother and I was just so out of it because I was just so sick and she was like ah you know what I have something for you and she goes over and she pulls out this bottle of 1989 Chateau Margaux I was like what and I was like I like did not know what this was I was like oh must be a nice wine and I have no idea what it tasted like because I, my sinuses were blocked so like my taste was blocked <laughs> but she opened it anyway and she brought it out and we had that bottle of wine and I swear to god the next morning my cold was gone <laughs> So I believe in science and that sounds very scientific from a French wine perspective. I'm going to believe that that cured you and there you go. And it brought you into the wine world. So then you dove deeper from there. I love that that story is what you remember for curing you, but also intriguing you at the same time. And I wish yeah. you could have tasted and smelled that wine. <laughs> I need to go back. You need so. to go back. Every time that you've lived there, has it been for school and studies or have you also been for just adventures and travels in wine? I lived there for study abroad and then I went back after graduation and I lived in Nantes which is in the Loire Valley on the in the west of the Loire Valley because I taught English for for a little while there as well so I was there and then uh, I started a graduate program, didn't finish it, call me a graduate school dropout, but but I found myself during it. So that's really all that matters, right? So part of that program was you had to do an internship at a French-speaking professional work environment. So I went to Paris and I worked at a PR and social media agency in Paris for a summer. So I've lived there like on and off three times. And then of course, like I've gone back for fun and for visits and all that kind of stuff. Wine is always woven into whatever you're doing there. I find it really fascinating, Katie. I don't think I knew this about your extensive knowledge in social media and in kind of the PR world as well. And I know that you are very well connected with the online wine community that now exists on Instagram, on Twitter, and on, through blogging and that kind of thing. And really, I see an epicenter in New York City. Yeah, I mean, again, it, you know, it started when I was working at this um, French wine marketing agency, because at the time, and that was about two and a half, uh, like three years ago now, when I started almost, and I worked there at the time, there, this wine influencing thing was not, like it did not exist. There was Chell from Chell Loves Wine. There was Amanda from The Real House Wine. And then there was there was Nicole from Grape Chic. And, and all of them had a much smaller following at the time because they were, they were essentially the only ones. Everybody else was kind of just psalms or journalists or, you know, someone who was getting a little bit of an online presence, but most of what they did was in a restaurant or events or, or things of that nature. And so I remember one of my coworkers who also was just doing a lot of influencer work with me, she discovered Chell and she was like, why don't we, why don't we proposed to like work with these people to our clients. And I was like, yeah, sure. Why don't we do this anyway? Like this, this makes perfect sense. Um, so the first thing that we ever did was the three of us and we did an event again for Wines of Southwest France and they came and that's kind of how the whole thing started because, you know, they were influential and lovely and wonderful content creators already. And they were so excited to be connected with wines that were not American because at the time, a lot of the marketing was only coming from the U.S. And so to be connected with French wines, we also did some Spanish wines. We had some Italian wines 
events at my agency. And so just to have that connection and be able to represent a region was, you know, a really big deal on both sides of it. So it kind of grew from there. And then of course, a lot of other people started wine influencing because it was fun and it was, it became a big thing in New York. People would get connected with Chell, Amanda or Nicole or me or my coworkers and they would just be like, yeah, I want to be a part of this world. And so we kind of just grew organically from there. It's just fascinating because a lot of these connections first start with you in that virtual world and then you're bringing it into person. And I, I love when I'm following lots of these accounts that you're mentioning and then I see you guys together and there's like cross promotion. And then I'm like, I need to go to New York City, which I can't do right now, obviously, but it really is a cool thing. And then you have this wine scene building up around you. And so is that where you find the most inspiration for your content now? Is it from your fellow wine bloggers or from your own personal exploration or a combination of everything? Yeah, I, I think it's both. Obviously, for me, France is always my biggest inspiration. And that's hard right now because we can't go there. So as I'm sure you know, I was supposed to be in Beaujolais right now. And so I'm very sad. <laughs> um, and instead, you're on the A Cork in the Road podcast. You know what? It's, it's not the next best thing, but it's the next best thing for sure. Absolutely. And I, I'm sad not to be there. But at the same time, I think what's really great is that there's been all these other initiatives that have come up to kind of replace it. So there's all these Instagram lives that are coming up. We have a lot of Zoom happy hours. It can be a little overwhelming, um, but I think as long as you pick the right ones to, to participate in, you know, it can be a really good outlet. I mean, New York before coronavirus, as I'm sure you also know, is it's really a mecca of food and wine to begin with. We had these amazing restaurants the, these amazing psalms, because it is so close to Europe, there's a huge Franco-American community here, lots of French people, lots of Italians, lots of Germans, Brits, Spanish. And, and so it was really this mixing of wine cultures that I think is why it gave birth to so many different wine influencers and different approaches. There's people who do fashion and wine, there's people who do food and wine, there's people who are, you know, psalms now in New York have enormous following you know it's really it's a it's something that's continuing to evolve I think because it's just at the center of all of these regions is why there's so many of us here I get envious of the amount of distribution and importing that happens in New York there is a little pocket of allocation that comes to Atlanta in Georgia and that's really due to the professionals here that are working on building that reputation. But man, when we get something in a little allocation, and then I see everyone in New York that's selling it and has it, I'm like, oh, I know where it ended up. <laughs> or, or even with the French imports, a lot of it is allocated first to New York City for the restaurant scene. So you're in a really good spot to get your hands on those things. And it made me wonder too, like, how do you, how do you shop for your wines? Or do you directly purchase from wineries? Like, how do you get your hands on the new stuff that you're looking forward to tasting, especially from France? Yeah, it is very different nowadays. You know, when I was working for the agency, I was just getting all this wine for free. <laughs> like I didn't have to pay for any of this wine. We'd have a photo shoot, we'd have a trade tasting, there'd be a couple bottles, like, you know what I mean? So it's like, eh, just take it and taste it and let us know what you think. Uh, that was kind of how it went. So actually, when I left that job, my dad was like, so how much money are you going to pay for wine now? Like, did you... <laughs> 
But now it's it's really a combination of online retailers. I try to shop as local as I can. So, you know, before coronavirus, I had a couple little wine shops that I just loved and was always going to. And I think the thing about New York is that, you know, shopkeepers, especially in wine, are still very personable and they're still into that sort of old generation way of selling wine, but with a new kind focus on like nobody is too young to like wine. There's no such thing as not knowing enough about wine to buy this wine. So the wine shop owners and, and, and people who work there that I've met have been really, really wonderful people and they've really helped me choose some great wines. Um, but now it's kind of like I try to order online from distributors or retailers who are in the New York area still because I feel like right now there's so much shipping in wine and there's a lot of pressure to get everything out at the right time and everybody's buying so much wine. So I think, you know, when I can buy something from a shop that's delivering locally, I feel a little bit better about where I'm spending my money. I like that you had those shops that you went to with people that you trust, even with your extensive knowledge in French wine, you still found those shops that were able to help you. And I love that you encourage people to ask the questions and not be intimidated by it. But what do you wish that people knew about French wine that you see is often missing from like a French wine exploration? I think that this is changing now, but I think when I first started, there is the misconception among Americans that good French wine is very expensive. Um, and that's simply not the case. And so that's really been a pillar of the the messaging that I've tried to um, show on my page is that you don't have to spend a lot of money to drink good French wine, especially when you're talking about the Loire, you're talking about Beaujolais, you're talking about Provence. Maximum, they cost you, what, 20, 25 bucks? I mean, and that's max. There's some really great wines from the Loire that are 10 bucks and 12 bucks. And, and I know my little sister, I remember asking her, like, why don't you drink any wine that's not from... California is Cabernet Sauvignon. And she said, because I can't afford it. And I was like, first of all, California Cabernet Sauvignon is actually not that inexpensive. There's a lot of really expensive Cab Savs from California. And you could get the same quality after import tax for 10 bucks, 15 bucks. Like, it's crazy. So yeah, I think that's the biggest misconception. Finding value in those regions that maybe you don't know from label recognition, but you do a really nice job about that. And I think you do it in a combination of your visuals and also your pronunciation. I love that you have times where you dive really deep into a region and you help people learn about different appellations and how to do that. And that's really cool to see that as a series. And you kind of help people discover new regions of France that they might not have been thinking about. So what are some of the regions in France that excite you right now? I think what's really interesting is that there's a lot of really cool things in wine that are happening in the Vin de France uh, category, because, you know, for so long, as you know, you are not really allowed to try different varieties or try different blends of grapes in, in France. So Vin de France really allows French winemakers to experiment for the, not the first time, but the first time in a while. Um, and actually, you know, make some money off the wines that they're that they're selling because they are really, really good. So yeah, I think, you know, obviously, in my opinion, experimentation can go too far. And I think, you know, people go a little crazy. The opposite was true in France. I think people were so constrained in the types of wines that they could create. You're going stir crazy, kind of like we all are now. And so just to have that little bit of freedom to experiment has produced some really um, incredible wines that I've, that I've had recently. I think you're totally bringing up something I find interesting in 
when I go to France and I'm meeting with producers there, there is this little bit of intrigue that happens when I talk about maybe a California producer who's doing Rhone style wines and they're like, oh, you know, that's that's different and, and neat. But a lot of times the regulations don't allow for that experimentation. So I see there's good and bad. There can be that freedom to do something, but then also you go to these regions in France that set the standard and like that is a beautiful thing as well to have it be so controlled to the point of you know what you're getting and the quality is there. So I definitely see both sides of, of being on the experimentation. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, French wine is renowned around the world for having the best wines in the world. And so if you're a French winemaker and, you know, your wine doesn't meet the standard, you know, in air quotes, of course, that can be, first of all, that can be really sad for you because you put all of your life into this little bottle of wine, but also because, you know, you want to be a part of, of French culture and the rules don't let you be a part of that. So it's definitely give and take. I mean, I can understand why the government puts such strict rules on everything because it is such a part of who they are, French wine and food. And so you have to have those, those rules, but you're the person to ask about a lot of this stuff though, because I think you bring together people that are interested in French history and culture, and then also French wine. And then you kind of talk about the history of French wine. I've learned a lot from you in terms of the laws and the regulations and the tariffs and things like that. So how do you keep up your own knowledge of what's going on in France in both the language, if you do any trainings there, and then also in French wine changes in terms of the laws and regulations? Yeah, I, I read a lot. Um, I think an untapped resource is the websites for the trade associations that represent the, the French wine regions. I mean, and you kind of have to like read between the lines. Some of them are not amazingly translated into English. I try to read them in the original French. And that's how I learn, you know, not just about the wines and the changes that are coming uh, their way. A lot of them have newsletters as well. So you can subscribe to those newsletters. But also, you know, it's a great way for me to keep my language comprehension skills up. And at least right now, since I'm not using French at work uh, the same way that I was, you know, that's something that'll sort of bridge the gap until I can get back with my French friends and have lunch again together. We used to do that a lot too. And so, so yeah, it's kind of a combination of both, but I think there's actually a lot of really great resources. I mean, the French Ministry of Agriculture has a whole huge website that just lists the laws and the changes and the appellations and stuff. I think that the difference is that there's not always an English version of every page. And so being able to read the French and to know what's going on is a big, is a big uh, asset for me. I did realize that when I was planning my, my most recent trip to Burgundy and I was setting up appointments with producers and I'd go to the website and a lot mm -hmm. of times it would come up, but then I could, I could push the little British flag and I got it to change it to English. And at some point I felt kind of guilty about that. Um, it really was something that I struggled with in terms of, I don't speak French why would I want to find the ones that I can go to that speak English? But then at the end of the day, I realized I'll get way more out of the experience if right. I can find the English translation or if I'm meeting with someone who speaks English. And, you know, someday I hope to change that in terms of French knowledge. But you're right. A lot of these pages are 
trying to connect with an English speaking audience to keep you up to date. Yeah, they really are. I think that that's something that French wine is working on doing. They've come a long way, but they still have quite a long way to go. Um, I think, you know, everybody says, well, Americans don't learn different languages. It's like, well, the French don't really either. So like, that's why we have this problem, you know, like, <laughs> thankfully, I have a lot of really good French friends who are polyglots, and they're brilliant and wonderful. And so I'm very lucky that, you know, when we get together, we can do English or French. But there's, you know, there's a lot of, of French people who just don't speak English. And it's fine. I mean, there's a lot of Americans, most Americans don't speak a second language, and, and it's totally fine. But I think, you know, learning another language or hiring on staff that speaks these other languages is a huge, huge, not just investment, but asset to them as they continue to sort of modernize and improve their, their vineyard tour process. I think that as you probably discovered in Burgundy, um, and I don't know much about your experience, and I I've personally never been to Burgundy, which is like a bucket list thing for me. You will. I believe you will. Soon, I have to. Yeah. I think that what I've heard about California wineries and their emphasis on tourism and everything is very clean and modern and they have a lot of resources available to tourists and they have, you know, tour guides and all of these different languages and stuff. I think that that's something that French vineyards really want to replicate in France and have that availability. That's sort of a cultural exchange that I think we can learn from each other is that you know, American wineries have invested very heavily in tourism. Um, and France as a country is one of the most visited places in the world every year for tourism. So I think French winemakers are finally understanding that this is going to be a priority for them in order to stay alive in the future, um, spending more to, to make it happen. Very cool to hear. And I and I never expected anyone to be able to speak English with me. I think that's the, the key there is, you know, I don't expect to speak English with you. But we also found that there was a lot of these nonverbal cues. And I don't think that anybody would want you to not come to their beautiful place and experience their wine, even right. if the language isn't 100%. The encouragement to try, the encouragement to find other ways to communicate was always there. And I appreciated yeah. that. Yeah, I went to, um, and it's really funny because, you know, some French people who do speak English are like, oh, my English is terrible. Like, never ask me to speak in English. And this was happening when I was in the Loire Valley last year, and we went to this one vineyard, and the guy who was giving us the tour who owned the place was like, I don't, you know, I don't speak English very well. Like, I'll just speak, and then you can translate for me. And I was like, oh, my God, okay, high-pressure situation. Um, but I started to translate, and he'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we get to one word, and I will have translated it wrong. And he'll be like, no. And I was like, how do you know? I was like, you know English. You're just telling me this to fake me out. So we made him speak English the rest of the time. <laughs> he was correcting your translation. But it is, it's great to hear that like, if you have not studied French, it should not stop you from going to visit France. And I'll be the first to say that. My husband and I even rented a car, drove from Paris to Burgundy, had to stop for gas, couldn't figure out how to get gas because you need a different credit card and things like this. We even had a flat tire. And you know what? People will help you whether yeah. you can speak the language or not. Yeah, it is. It is a common misconception that the French are rude and not helpful. Parisians can be rude and unhelpful. But speaking as a New Yorker, I am very rude and unhelpful when people ask me for things in the city, because I have places to go. So it's more of a city thing than it is a French people thing. I, I've found that the French people are some of the kindest, most generous people that I've, I've ever met. So beautiful. Um, I, I can 100% agree to that, especially in the smaller villages and just the, the generosity and the, the overwhelming come visit us, spend time with us, sit down and share a meal with us. Like it, it's definitely there. Now I know that you are a city girl now, 
but I believe that you are an honorary Southerner at heart. Where did you grow up? It wasn't New York City, where, but I feel like you have some sort of connection to the South. <laughs> yeah, I sort of do. Um, so my family moved around a lot growing up, and that's kind of why I uh, loved French so much, because no matter where we were going, there was always a French class, right? So that was kind of the thing that kept me going and probably why I kept studying French. Um, but I was born in Baltimore, Maryland, so my family is Maryland and Northern Virginia is kind of where we're all from. Um, when I was a little kid, we moved to Wisconsin, and then my dad retired early when I was 13, and we moved to Florida. So my parents are still in Florida. Um, and my little sister went to school in Georgia. Um, she went to Berry College um, outside of Atlanta. And so she's very Southern. She says, y'all, that kind of thing. She works in agriculture. So yeah, so that's kind of the Southern connection. <laughs> but she says, y'all, that makes you Southern. I'm, I'm originally from Minnesota. So I, I do love that you've traveled a lot. You've seen a lot of different people. And I think that helps you connect with people. I love that you mm -hmm. always find a way to to teach and yes maybe it started with the language but you also did teach your first wine class was that yes. kind of scary for you to do a first wine education or was that super easy it was terrifying <laughs> it was fun though but i i went in i was all prepared i had this powerpoint and i was ready i had like all my answers to the questions i thought they were going to ask and then at the end they didn't ask me those questions at all they were not interested in my powerpoint they had all these other questions and I was like what this is not what I thought was gonna happen so I kind of got a little you know flustered I think in the end I answered the questions but I was just very surprised at the the level of uh, knowledge that these people had and also of the misconceptions that people had it was interesting I do it again but <laughs> But you were terrified. I appreciate your honesty. Here they are throwing curveballs about French wine at you, which is great. I think that it sparks a conversation. I think the education piece of wine draws a lot of different people in from all different kinds of backgrounds, whether you're into science, you're into geography, you're into history. It, it's an amazing thing to see a group of people. And I even see that now with the virtual tastings. It's not as easily done uh, through the online world, but you can still connect with people all over the world and with different interests, which is really, really great. So how do you keep up on finding new wines to taste in terms of your collection? Is it all French or are you drinking other things? In you can be honest here, but you must drink things other than French wine. No, I, I do. I'm actually trying to branch out a little bit. Um, I recently ordered a case uh, from Wine Still Sold Out. They had a case sale, which was really great. And a lot of the wines that I ordered actually are Italian. So I'm trying to get a little bit more into Italian wine because it is the closest to French wine. Um, and then I also have a couple from Austria. Um, I have a Blau Frankish and a, and a Pinot Noir up there. Um, so yeah, I, ch I tend to stay old world just because of the style of wine that I prefer is old world. But you know, there, there are a couple of new world wines that I've tried and been like, Okay, maybe. <laughs> I love that you were, I love that you could be honest and that you are, well, I mean, if you're a wine lover, this is something I think is really impressive to me when I run into people and they truly love wine, you will never hear someone say, I don't drink blank. Like somebody that loves the world of wine will probably try something at least once. You can have your preferences, but someone like you who just absolutely breathes and loves this, this whole industry, I can imagine that you'd be okay with exploring, which is good to hear. Yeah, I mean, it's, exploring is important, not just because of, you know, 
your palate and your knowledge and all the things that make life on this planet rich, but also because like global warming is happening. And so the wine world is going to be changing very, very dramatically very soon. And so if you don't know, and especially terroir is going to be changing because France, like Northern France is probably now going to be growing much more wine than Southern France is going to be able to, I give it like 20 or 30 years. And you know, maybe Languedoc, Roussillon, they, they can't do the same volume that they used to be able to do. And so, you know, to find other terroir that you enjoy is going to be important as the world keeps changing. So you're not just, you know, stuck in one, in one place. I love that. And, and being able to describe what you like about those wines. So you find that style, you know, having your preference and your personal vocabulary for what you like is really, really key. So I think I'm I'm right there with you. Where is your next wish list destination for French wine? I know that you studied in the Loire. You said that you haven't been to Burgundy, but where are places that you just can't wait to go to when we can travel again? Well, I need to make that Beaujolais trip happen. The, the problem, and the problem with France, <laughs> the thing about France is that everything is so close together that you, it's so hard to just say, I'm just going to do this because you're like, well, I could drive an hour and then I'd be in Rhone or I could drive the other way and then I'd be in Burgundy or then I could drive this way and I'd be in Alsace, you know? So, um, I want to just take like a three week tour <laughs> and do Beaujolais and like Southern Bourgogne and then maybe do Northern Bourgogne on a separate, on a separate trip. So. I think a lot of people want you to do that because you'll take us along with you uh, virtually. And I think so we're all supporting this. I did find that. I mean, you probably can take trains a little bit more easily, but my husband and I rented a car in Paris. We drove to Burgundy and we do that regularly. That's We have some good friends there. But then this time we were going to drive down to the Rhone Valley and we looked at the map and we're like, how could we not stop in Beaujolais? Like we're going right through it. So we did that, you know, and you, you find out that you can do a lot of these things, but I think you're right. I think finding the focus is very hard because you want to be going to all the places. Yeah. I have a friend who, she lives in Paris and they had like some long weekend and she was just, she just ended up in Chablis because it's like, eh, it's like an hour and a half train. So I'll just go. And I was like, what? And I like replied to all of her stories. And I was like, did you go to any wineries? Like, what did you see? And she's like, no, we just kind of walked around and shoveled. I'm like, mind blown. Like, <laughs> what? Just for a little day trip, just a little, a little jaunt. I like what I'm seeing though, in terms of the US market, I'm, I'm really in intrigued and I'm, I'm glad that I see you post about it as well. When I'm in France, I get really excited about all the sparkling wine outside of champagne. I mean, I love champagne, but what mm -hmm. regions are discovering to do for sparkling? And we're seeing a lot more of that here. And I'm wondering if that's something that you think will be a little bit more of that leading in, in experimentation of other sparkling styles from the non-traditional regions. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think what's interesting is that France has already just been doing that because they're, I mean, people are talking about, you know, Petit Naturel in, in the United States, Hello, the term is French. They've been doing this for hundreds of thousands of years. If, you know, I mean, the more that I read about, you know, I'm reading more about sparkling wines in the Rhone right now, like Claret de D and Cremant and all these things. And all of the, everything that I've read has been like, oh, well, they've been doing this in the Rhone since 59 AD. And I'm like, 59 AD? They've had Petillon? Like, are you nuts? We just don't know about it because it's not an AOC, so it's not exported as much. 
So I think when you go over there, almost every single region has their own version of Cremant or their own Petillon or, you know, whatever sparkling they have and they're experimenting with it just naturally. Now, whether or not they're able to sell it is a whole other story, but I hope they do because I personally am not a huge fan of sparkling wines, but I know everybody loves French sparkling wines. So I'm here for it. <laughs> you're helping people find out what's going on with it. And I think that's, you're, you're definitely a tour guide when it comes to finding things. And I love that, a virtual tour guide. But you always welcome people to send you messages and to submit requests. What are some of the most common inquiries that you get from people and followers are they asking about how to say certain regions or are they asking about types of wine, where to shop? Like what are the types of things that come your way? It's mostly the pronunciation of regions or of appellations that are having a moment. So I think the one that sparked the most controversy was when I posted about on Cabernet Franc Day and the C is not pronounced and people were ballistic. They were like, what? What do you mean it's not pronounced? I'm like, no, it is not. And also neither is Sauvignon Blanc. The C is silent. Boom, mind blown. So when I posted those, everybody would ask me about like, okay, what about Malbec? Like, do you pronounce the C? Like, yes, you pronounce the C on Malbec. And then that kind of just like leads a whole like just daisy chain of requests about grapes or a region or, or things of that nature. I think people have a lot of questions about Bordeaux and the southwest of France because those regions do not follow French pronunciation rules. <laughs> and Champagne doesn't either because there's so many influences from other places. Um, so, you know, in that area in southwest France, there's the Basque language, there's, there's the Latin language, there's a the Roman language. Um, and then there's family names and family names on the chateau. They come from all other places in Europe or outside of Europe. And so, the pronunciation is kind of nuts and it doesn't follow French rules. And so it's almost been a bit of a difficult for me to even go through them because I'm like, well, this is how it should be pronounced, but it's a family name. So it's actually said this way. So I think that's the toughest part. And yeah. then you often use the hashtag because French, because just because <laughs> French, like yeah. it doesn't make sense, but because, um, and sometimes that's important to just accept that like it doesn't follow the rules and that's okay. Cause that's the beauty of humanity. You know, we all have these crazy, you know, last names. My name, my last name is Melchior and it does not follow any linguistic rules in any country I've ever been in. <laughs> so like, <laughs> But that yeah. keeps you always looking to find out more too. I love when you stumble upon a challenge and then it causes you to maybe connect with a couple other mentors or other fellow French speakers and investigate how do you say that family name that you can't just look up in a book. Yeah, it is always a challenge. And that's why I'm very, very um, lucky to have so many wonderful French friends, um, many of whom will call me out if I've done something wrong <laughs> on my page. I have deleted posts before and reposted them or just taken them off my list entirely. And I've been like, you know what? Thank you, though, because you keep me honest. And this is how we, we learn. I think the most controversial things is because I don't use the international phonetic alphabet. I just use the regular alphabet. And so there have been a lot of ling linguistics people who have found me and been like, this is incorrect. I'm like, no, this is how you approach it from an American perspective of someone who's never studied another language before. And I don't want to alienate people from feeling like they're not smart enough or educated enough to learn about French wine. Wow, that's super interesting. You're getting linguistic people coming to you and wanting to have a discussion. I love that. You're bringing in all kinds of people. One of your blog posts was really interesting to me. And it hit me, I think, because I, I feel similar from a Spanish perspective, but it was how to stay bilingual in a monolingual society. 
And I felt that that is something that is probably something a lot of people feel from whatever that is. But what are some of the tips that you would give people that maybe studied in college or in high school and they're wanting to get back into that, but they don't have the opportunities to use it as often? You've somehow found a way. What are some of your tips? Yeah, I mean, I think it really depends on the the type of media that you consume most often, um, because now, thankfully, we live in a digital world, and the the French government and actually French film and French radio is huge, and you can essentially access it from anywhere in the world that you are. So even Netflix now has French shows; they have French shows and movies, and um, you know all kinds of stuff that you can watch on Netflix and Hulu and, and all these other things. So that's something that I do very often: is watch old French films, new French series that are on Netflix. There's also a ton of podcasts. The French government has a whole series of of sort of NPR-like radio shows. Um, they have ones for food and wine, and then they also just have news-focused things. And it can be intimidating at first because they're native French speakers, so they speak very fast. Um, but the more that you listen to them, you kind of pick up their rhythm and their language and the types of terms that they use. So I'm a very, like, audio and visual learner, so I have to, like, see it and hear it for me to understand it. Um, and then I have to, like, repeat it back to myself. So those kinds of media are a bit better for me just because of the way that I learn. But there's also so many French books out there, French literature. I mean, if you took high school French and college French, then you know that you have to read French literature to really understand their culture. And so if you've already had a bit of experience doing that, then why not dive back into Les Miserables? And if you only get one or two pages done a day and you have to look up every single word, (laughs) at least you did it, you know? (laughs) You're staying connected to the educational side of things. And yeah, it connects you. I do think that language is such a deep part of feeling like you are a part of a culture. And so even though I did say it shouldn't stop you from going to France, I think that the depth that you are able to go into the culture, being able to speak the language is incomparable too. So there's benefits of having that be a piece if you enjoy studying wine to learn a little bit about the language of the wine regions you enjoy and vice versa. So I do think that's like a giant piece of the puzzle that makes you feel more connected to the place. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, another thing that can be tough is that a lot of people will say, well, the French don't like it when you come over here uh, because you don't speak their language. And that might be true in a sense, but I think it's more that cultural aspect that you're talking about. You come in maybe as a loud American in a huge tour group and all you want is to take up space and time and you want things immediately. You know, that's very anti-French culture. And so, you know, you have to respect the culture that you're coming into when you go travel. I think that that's a skill that is not really spoken about. And hopefully when we're all able to travel again, you know, we can kind of incorporate that back. Because I personally, like I've never been to Asia. I would love to go to Asia. But before I do so, I would want to make sure I at least know how to say like, hi, thank you, um, like goodbye. And then like maybe read a book about like, for example, Chinese cultural like gestures that I should know about before I go there, just because otherwise I would feel uncomfortable, you know? It shows um, the respect and to, to avoid any disrespectful behavior, just out of the gate, just know what those kind of key points are. I I agree with that. I really, I like that as really good advice and all the different mixed medias to keep studying and keep finding out what those, what those kind of key points are before you travel. I think that's absolutely awesome. You also give tips on not just wine. I think one of my favorite series of videos that you did was about 
French cheese. You helped people navigate in like a regular supermarket to pick up cheese and analyze these products. And I guess you could do it with wine too, but I think you kind of uncovered this not always spoken about thing of the cheese that you think is French might not actually be French. Yes. And this is true for butter as well. Um, and it is also true for wine. I think, you know, this is, this is something that Americans have been doing for hundreds of years, really. Um, you know, we find a product in France that we like, and then we try to replicate it here by making up French terms or by using French terms in a way that they're not meant to be used um, because it makes them look more fancy. And so American consumers, when they see French on the label, often the immediate reaction is, oh, it's French. It must be really good. It must be fancy. You know, I need to buy this. And that's just something that's ingrained from us. As a lot of people have told me, imitation is the highest form of flattery. And that's true. I think there is something to be said for Franco-American culture as its separate thing. But you know, you got to make sure that you know what you're buying and, and where it's coming from. And the good thing about a French product is that it has to always say product of France on it. The French are big about transparency in their food because their government requires a sort of stricter labeling system. Um, whereas American labeling doesn't really require it except on the on the bottom and very, very small letters. <laughs> so... I am yeah. now one of those people that will go and flip the cheese over. And I do think of, good thing I saw this one time on the French wine tutor. So I am, I am much more of a picky cheese buyer. And I, and I say thank you for that. I, I think that's a good thing. I think about these things of all the ways that you've helped me personally in exploring French culture and French wine. How can more people connect with you? How can they find out more? What's the best way to get in touch with you? Follow me on Instagram. I'm, I'm basically always on it. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, you know, a lot of people ask, why did I start the page? And it's true that I'm obviously very passionate about French wine and culture and history, but I also started it for wine influencers and for wine professionals because I wanted them to feel confident when they were telling other people about French wines, especially for sommes. You know, if, if a sommelier is so, so knowledgeable about French wine, but doesn't know or feel confident in the pronunciation, then that affects their whole, the whole day, their whole mood, the way they're presenting it, that wine. And it's so, so important to give them the tools that they need or anyone else who's doing events in wine. So I created my page for all of you. It's not for me. So I welcome any and all questions. And I'm not that scary, I promise. So <laughs> never hesitate. I won't yell or scream or get angry. It's <laughs> amazing. You are so open to that. Thank you for, for offering that connection and ability for people to reach you directly. It's something I think even in social distancing, we all miss is that connection. And it's pretty incredible how the world of wine has been resilient and allowed people like you to use your voice and your platform in a way to stay connected. So thank you for doing that. Everybody, please follow Katie. She's amazing. I will link it below. And thank you for your time. I can't wait till we actually cheers in person someday. Uh, yes, someday. I don't know. Maybe I'll go to Atlanta first or you'll come to New York or maybe we'll meet up in Burgundy. Who knows? There you go. We'll just cross paths in France. I love it. Cheers to you, my friend. I just appreciate you and keep doing what you're doing. Cheers to you. Santé. Santé. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Live with the Cork in the Road. This is Kelly signing off. Until next time, when we share stories of people who are shaping the Southeast wine industry and the wine world beyond. If you want more adventures with us, check 
us out online and on Instagram at a cork in the road. And you can also visit our website, www.acorkintheroad.com for all kinds of updates and to sign up for our monthly newsletter. Cheers and take care.